John Lewis. And welcome to The Long Watch, the internet's premiere pro John Lithgow, pro 500 Days of Summer podcast, where we stick to the list for better or worse. This week we have watched Jennifer's Body. It's a horror comedy starring Amanda Seyfried and Megan Fox. But before we get into that, we'll talk about what we've seen within the week. Lawson, why you start us off? Sure thing. Well, it's been a Pinocchio-heavy year this year on the podcast and why stop now i went to the cinema and i saw the netflix guillermo del toro directed version of pinocchio it is also directed i should say by mark gustafson as well it's a stop-motion fantasy film based on the novel the adventures of pinocchio by carlo collotti and in it a grieving woodcutter named geppetto he's played by well he's voiced by david bradley here crafts a replacement son pinocchio played by Gregory Mann, after he loses his actual son. This wooden boy is given life by a wood sprite and really doesn't understand the world he now finds himself in and finds himself being taken advantage of. So, you know how you guys were, like, talking about that live-action Robert Zemeckis one and you were Mm. like, oh, it's, you know, they lean into it, they go darker and stuff. You guys ain't seen nothing until you've seen Guillermo del Toro's version of Pinocchio. It is taken to mythic and dark extremes. The opening of this movie, and this is not a spoiler, I mean, this is the first, like, ten minutes. The opening of this movie is an extended prologue with Geppetto's actual son before he gets killed by a stray bomb in World War One. Awesome. Whoa. Geppetto is obviously distraught. He just is off his head, spends years disconnected from the world, getting drunk, and, you know, just generally despairing until finally he gets super plastered one night and uh, cuts down a pine tree that has grown on top of his son's grave to craft Pinocchio out of. And the way that the creation of Pinocchio is shot and framed, it's filmed as an act of violence and trauma. It's not filmed as a, you know, a sort of like, hobbyist thing of of lovingly going over the wood or anything like it's breaks and cracks and chops and it's filmed very much like Frankenstein's creation basically and Pinocchio is kind of freaky when he turns up because he doesn't really get his limbs right he doesn't sort of understand the way that people move and so the first time you see him definitely Geppetto wakes up the next morning and hears noises in the attic he goes upstairs and just looming out of the dark is Pinocchio doing these like golem crouches and his head spinning around and things it's genuinely (laughs) freaky and then everyone's going to church that morning and Pinocchio's like I'm gonna go to church as well so while everyone's 
praying. Pinocchio just walks down the middle of church and everyone freaks the hell out and starts pointing at him and calling him a demon. Exactly. And this goes throughout the whole movie. There's visual comparisons between Pinocchio and Christ. That there's like comparisons that Del Toro repeatedly draws to this crucifix of Jesus that Geppetto was crafting for the church when his son was killed and Pinocchio himself, like right down to the sort of messy patch of bent nails that are driven into Pinocchio's back. It's very interesting and not like nothing I've ever seen for this story before. And on top of it all, he's Del Toro has relocated it in time to the early 21st century. So Geppetto's son was killed in the First World War, but this takes place about two decades after that, and it is set just prior to the outbreak of World War II, when Italy was obviously in the grips of fascism. And uh, let's just say, if you ever wanted to see stop-motion Mussolini, here is your chance. This is the movie for you. (laughs) It was... An absurd idea that he wouldn't inject, you know, fascism Mm. as a historical element into the movie. It's prominent in his entire filmography. And it's interesting because you see one of the reasons I think that Pinocchio connects with Del Toro through that. The idea that Pinocchio is treated badly by the world at large because he doesn't conform to society, to societal expectations. Whereas in this version, Del Toro is is showing society and societal expectations as, you know, not a good thing. And so he sort of takes that siding with the underdog and, like, literalizes it and contextualizes it in a certain time and place to this really interesting stuff. I should have expected Guillermo del Toro to give us anti-fascist Pinocchio. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> oh, yeah, and it's definitely anti-fascist Pinocchio. Very much so. Like, it doesn't shy away from dealing with that stuff. It's faithful spiritually to the story rather than mm. literally. It has all of the main points, but it remixes them as it goes along. There's this whole sort of father and son theme that's running throughout. So there's the father and son thing with Geppetto and Pinocchio, but then there's the, the circus owner, Volpe, who's played here by Christoph Waltz, who is perfect casting. There's sort of a, a framing of... Him as a sort of a father figure to Pinocchio juxtaposed with Geppetto. And then there's this whole other character, you know, this local basically fascist leader in Pinocchio's town and the way he mistreats his son. So it all ties into that stuff and it leans on the emotion of it heavily. Bradley is absolutely fantastic in this role. He is brilliant as Geppetto, heartbreaking, just sells it all at every step of the way. And you get some great fresh takes on other characters and concepts as well. Ewan McGregor is a pretty fantastic, not Jiminy Cricket, they went back to the original name from the book, Sebastian Cricket, who is sort of a Mark Twain-esque travelling writer who is tasked by the spirit to look after Pinocchio and be his conscience because he was living in a hollow of the tree when Geppetto cut it down. And that part of the tree ended up being Pinocchio's chest. So he's like literally living in Pinocchio's heart. The Pleasure Island sequence that Del Toro comes up with is genius. And it's not what you think it is. It's not what you've got in your head. Even for Del Toro, it is the movie's probably, I would I would argue, one of the movie's big works of genius. The other one is one I'm holding back because it is 
the most striking del Toro touch imaginable. And it's a sort of recurring thing throughout the movie, and you'll know it when you see it. I'm not entirely sure if it's new or if it is appeared in some previous version somewhere along the way. I don't think it has. I think it's a del Toro touch, but I can't be sure. But it is. Is Monstro good? Uh, yes, yes, definitely. There's a lot of good stuff there. It's gorgeous as well. Like, the craftsmanship on display here is astonishing. And more than that, it's the way the characters move. There is none of that herky-jerky stuff that you sometimes get with stop motion. It is Mm. so fluid and so, like, creepily real-looking, the movement. The movement is so fluid and real that the fact that they are obviously stop-motion puppets adds a level of, like, strange, odd atmosphere to it all. It it really is a... (laughs) particular thing but yeah it's in cinemas i don't think it will be in cinemas by the time this episode comes out anymore it was just a limited thing yeah it won't be on netflix by the time this comes out either i don't think i think it comes out december 9th yes so definitely check it out then oh it's on our list yeah it's on the list meanwhile at home i saw uh district nine It is a science fiction thriller directed by Neil Blomkamp. It's based on Blomkamp's own short film, Alive in Joburg. And in it, aliens, an alien spaceship turns up, hovering over Johannesburg in Africa. But the spaceship has broken down and everyone on board is sort of lethargic and, you know, they're aimless. They don't seem right anymore. And uh, so they're stranded there and they are moved by the African government into slums and... The bulk of the movie takes place 20 years later, where xenophobia is now this huge thing. And an eviction officer named Vickers, played by Shalto Copley, is sent into the slums because basically they're relocating all of the aliens and uh, setting them away from humans to a much greater distance. Extraterrestrial apartheid. Yes. While he's in the slums, he's exposed to a biological agent and he starts transforming into an alien himself. And he really doesn't like experiencing things the other way around as an alien instead of a human. This is interesting and ambitious, but it's not really my thing in the end. It's it's a pretty small movie, all things considered. It was pretty cheap. It was pretty independent. But it's got such a huge scope. And it's Blomkamp's feature debut, which is incredibly impressive. It's framed as sort of a half documentary. So it keeps cutting away to these talking head interviews, talking about the story in retrospect. And it's effective because it gives you such a good anchoring in the world of the movie and it gives you a good amount of context and a good amount of backstory as well. But it is a little jarring, especially towards the end because the documentary stuff sort of fades out of the movie and we just start spending all of our time with Charlotte Copley. And so the sort of mental disconnect between real life, quote-unquote, unfolding in real time and... And after the fact, documentary intercut with it just is, is highlighted a little more. But the story very cleverly draws on racial segregation and refugees. As, of course, you said, Harley, this being said in Africa, there's the sort of the spectre of apartheid hanging over the top of it. And there's a lot of body horror as well. Too mm. much body horror, I would argue. There's a, too much fluid and, and that stuff. And it feels crass. Next to the politics, it feels kind of inelegant, especially the way that they linger on it and sort of celebrate it. I think that's the issue. I'm not opposed to sort of body horror, but not so much in the way that it's handled here. It's good, I think, that they don't go super in-depth on the aliens. They don't give you some big explanation of where they come from or what happened to them or why they're stranded there. Not sure about some of the choices they make, though. There's this whole 
side thing where there's a bunch of humans who think that by eating the aliens they can absorb their power and it's from like a different movie it's not from the smart social satire that we've been seeing up till this point it's from a an early days like brain dead era peter jackson basically which is fair enough because peter jackson produced this movie but next to space apartheid very clever very elegantly handled space apartheid too by the way that whole thing feels tone deaf. Mm. Copley's fantastic, though. This was him, his film debut. He had just done a pair of shorts before this, and in fact was only even cast because he was a, a colleague or a friend of the director's who had appeared in the original short. He had no intention of being an actor before being cast in this movie, and now he is an actor, obviously. But the CG is excellent as well, especially considering mm. the budget. The aliens are very well designed, and I've got to give a shout-out to Jason Cope, who is the actor who plays pretty much all of the aliens of note throughout the movie in motion capture. It's a very good performance from him. Performances, I should say. But if you would like to watch this, it's available for streaming on Netflix, Binge, and Foxtel now. An Exor Gamer. It is an action movie directed by Mark Neveldine and Brian Taylor, and it's set in the near future, where some technology has been invented that allows people to sort of take over other people's bodies. And it's created sort of an in-real-life video game, sort of an R-rated second life, where you sit down in front of a computer and plug in, and you will you will take over the body of a person who usually is pretty desperate and has signed a contract and is being paid money to be hijacked by these gamers and then they sort of hang out and do awful stuff together. But that's now been expanded to a televised convict battle royale where gamers can take control of death row inmates and have them fight to the death. And the convict most famous for these fights is Cable, played by Gerard Butler. He's close to winning 30 matches in a row, which would see him released. But the head honcho who came up with all this technology, Castle, played by Michael C. Hall, doesn't want him out. He knows a little too much about the origins of the technology. And there's a bit of a conspiracy that he's privy to that Castle wants to make sure he locks down. And so he's going to rig the games against Cable. And Cable makes a deal with the gamer controlling him, Simon, played by Logan Lerman, to let him take control and go off script, basically. This is ugly, both visually and spiritually. Mm. I like Crank, the first Crank, but Neville Dean and Taylor took all of the wrong lessons from it. They have this obsession with edge or what they think of as edge and their view of edginess is the same view of edginess that a 12 year old would have it becomes revolting and on top of that there's just a terrible script terrible acting michael c hall is shockingly bad as the main villain like he is a cartoon character of the most embarrassing type it's just industrial spaces as well that all of this is taking place in An incredibly harsh visual style Somehow this movie cost $50 million. I really don't get it. It's kind of inexplicable because it looks like it could have been shot for $15 million in a warehouse somewhere. The action's okay, but they undercut all of that with this mad editing style, sort of flashes jumping around, you know, Michael Bay sort of editing. And it just never stays out of its own way. And it's just a movie that I can't recommend at all. It's got nothing in its head. And nothing nothing deeper when you scratch the surface. And the surface is pretty ugly as well. I next saw Sorority Row. It is a slasher directed by Stuart Sendler. And it is based on the 1982 film House on Sorority Row, directed by Mark Rossman. And in it, 
a bunch of sorority members at a college are graduating, but this is eight months after they accidentally caused the death of one of their number and then disposed of her body rather than alert the authorities. As they're wrapping up the final days of college, they are terrorized by a masked killer who seems to know the truth of what happened to their sorority sister. You could say that he knows what they did last summer. You could. To be fair, though, that is the plot of the original movie, which predates I Know What You Did Last Summer. Fair. This is trash, but it's fun trash. I did see the original years ago before we started the podcast, like my first year of the list, or maybe my second year, I don't know. It was somewhere around the end of the first year, beginning of the second. And uh, I didn't much care for it. It wasn't bad, but it was mediocre. I don't remember very much of it. It is one of many, many mediocre 70s and 80s slasher movies I saw at that time, and a lot of them start to blend together. But this takes that sort of dumb energy of the classic slasher and injects it with a bit of like modern day self-awareness and freshness to it it's old school at a time when that wasn't happening you know 2009 Mm. everyone was very much still in the sort of torture porn if you if you really did a classic story it had to be sort of i don't know making fun of it in a way it was the platinum dunes it was the platinum yeah well that's a good point it wasn't making fun of it it was the platinum dunes era whereas this is everything you expect from a sorority slasher but what i What I didn't expect was how funny it was. It is not a comedy, but it's got a lot of humour in it. It's got some self-awareness about itself and about the characters that it's dealing with. It's not making fun of the genre, I don't think, but it's not smart as a story. And this movie knows that it's not smart. And it gets a lot of very fun sort of bitchiness out of these sorority sisters that the main characters bickering and and yelling at each other. The mystery's okay, I suppose. The villain is totally inexplicable when they turn up. It makes absolutely no sense for this person to be the killer. There is no motivation. But there are some decent performances from the sorority sisters. Brianna Evergan, Margot Harshman, Audrina Partridge... They're all pretty good. I will say it wastes Carrie Fisher as the house mother. They must have had her for like two days tops. She turns up in a couple of scenes at the beginning and she she turns up again in the third act with a shotgun. Yeah. But the most striking scene really is the cold open where they accidentally kill their sorority sister. And there's this extended debate that goes on for like a good five minutes after she dies, which is what do they do with the body? This is the most interesting thing because it's, it's these divisions. You're seeing a lot of these girls' personality and some of them want to go to the cops. Others are being like peer pressured into keeping quiet. And it's like totally out of step with the rest of the movie because for a sec, for a moment here, it's kind of intelligent and intense. It, it actually feels quite jarring, but it's the best scene in the thing. And it's a very interesting little moment that I... I don't know. I I like what we ended up with, but I would be interested to see a movie that had that kind of wit about it throughout the whole runtime. But anyways, if you would like to watch it, it's available for streaming in Australia on Binge and Foxtel Now. I next saw White Out. It is a mystery thriller directed by Dominic Sainer, and it's based on the graphic novel of the same name written by Greg Rucker and illustrated by Steve Lieber. It's set in Antarctica at a research base, which is closing up shop for the winter. They're going to have that sort of six-month sundown thing where most of the staff go home, but a storm is approaching, and so they have to evacuate early. And on top of that, things get very complicated 
when someone is discovered alone and murdered out on the ice. Shit. And uh, the U.S. Marshal at the station, because it's a U.S. station, Carrie Stetko, played by Kate Beckinsale, has to investigate as sort of her window for doing this runs out because if if everyone gets evacuated before the storm, then obviously the killer's going to be evacuated. This movie has a terrible critical reception. Its Rotten Tomatoes rating is abysmal and it does not deserve that punch-up. I'm actually a fan of this movie. Not a big fan, but a fan. I'm a big fan of premises like this, which probably helps get get it over the line. It's basically like The Thing, but with a, like a slasher villain or something. Definitely. It makes a decent use of the remoteness of Antarctica, the danger of the Arctic, the idea what one one character says it at one point when he's explaining what can happen to you if you're out in the snow too long. He says, nature never intended for you to survive here. You know, it's this mm. sort of idea of you're not supposed to be here. You know, you're supposed to go home. You're not supposed to be out here on this tundra where yeah. nothing grows. The closest to an alien planet that this, yeah. this Earth and there's a sort of an idea there of, you know, sort of what does that do to you when you're out there in, in the isolation? It doesn't hammer that home as much as it probably should. It doesn't come up with the ideas to support it as much as it probably should. And it's especially hamstrung by the fact that they are working on this sort of massive industrialized research base. There are literally dozens and dozens of extras milling around in the background. It's like like the rebel base in Yavin 4, basically. Everyone's everyone's prepping to... Well, like Hoth, I should say, in Empire Strikes Back. Everyone's prepping to evacuate in the background of every scene. So it, it really doesn't sell that feeling of aloneness, no matter how many times they, they hit it. But Carrie is a decent lead as a character, and I think that Beckinsale is quite good in the role. I think that the mystery could be more engaging. The solution to it is not very compelling at all. It's, in fact, a little mundane. I think they needed to come up with sort of a, a nastier, more desperate solution as to why this happened, when it really feels like something that just could have been the solution on an episode of, like, Magnum P.I. or something. It, it really it's no different from any sort of standard criminal of the week thing. Uh, they haven't matched it to the setting and the sort of the horror of isolation very well but there's a decent supporting cast packed with red herrings tom skerritt is quite good as carrie's mentor at the base he's a doctor who is just getting ready to retire but that the sense of scale considering the budget it's a reasonably low budget the sense of scale that they achieve is very strong and they definitely got a lot of mileage out of that they didn't go to the arctic but they did go far enough north into canada that it looks like the arctic just complete isolation in all four directions. You can't see anything but the ice, and they get a lot of scale out of that. Well, that's a nice attention to detail, mm. because it is really hard to shoot anything in Antarctica. Production costs aside, you have to deal with all of the insurance in such a hostile landscape, and a lot of camera equipment aren't built for that kind of cold. Yeah. And... It is nice that they went to, like, northern, northern Canada. As far as you can reasonably go. You can't really mimic the landscape if you're not going to a landscape that's very similar. I enjoyed it. It doesn't stand out in the end. Um, I think it misses a few too many opportunities. It lacks a consistent energy, but I enjoyed it. And it definitely doesn't deserve the, I think, 7% Rotten Tomatoes rating it has, which is absurd. Definitely that the fact that it has a lower Rotten Tomatoes rating than Gamer does is is a monstrous mistake. Lastly, this week, I saw The Informant. It is a historical dramedy directed by Steven Soderbergh, and it is based on the non-fiction book 
The Informant, A True Story by Kurt Eichenwald. It's set in the 1990s, and it's the true story of the lysine price-fixing scandal. Basically, it's corn syrup, that sort of stuff. Basically, the whole thing of that scandal was a bunch of these companies were price-fixing, cooperating with their competitors to price-fix and really keep prices higher than they would have otherwise have been if they had all been operating like they were supposed to. Very much moving towards sort of... Monopoly-esque yeah. behavior. But it's like, it's, you think to yourself, oh, corn syrup. Corn syrup's in everything. Yeah. You know, yeah. there's a line there that the average American citizen is the victim of corporate crime by the time they finish breakfast. Mm. Hmm. But Mark Whitaker, played by Matt Damon, is an executive at Archer Daniels Midland. And this is the main focus of this story. This is one of the companies producing high fructose corn syrup. And he confesses to the FBI that the company is doing this, conspiring with its competitors to keep prices high. The trouble is, is that once he starts being an informant for the FBI, the FBI start realizing that though he is definitely telling the truth about the price fixing, he is a very unreliable witness and kind of, well, he's a compulsive liar who just can't help but escalating things. This is interesting, but I don't think it goes quite hard enough. It has an ironic tone. It's a comedy, but only softly so. It doesn't go for the throat like it should. It could have used some sharper edges to it. It's interesting because we're seeing all of this through the point of view of Mark Whitaker. We're seeing it through the eyes of an unreliable narrator, and you will have these sequences where... Damon is narrating over the top and it's it's just the random streams of consciousness that are going through this guy's head, jumping from topic to topic and making the stupidest observations and the most narcissistic, egotistical thought processes that end up taking him to the worst possible decisions and locations that he could go. You're observing him, but you're not with him. He's the main character and yet you're with the police in terms of the information that you have. You don't know everything that Mark Whitaker's doing until the cops do. And that's a sort of an odd thing. Yeah, that feels weird, just you describing it. Yeah, it's a very strange thing. And I kind of get what they were going for in that mm. you are you are being sold his take on the events, just like the FBI were being sold. And it sort of all starts to unravel and get messier, just like it did for the FBI. But... It's still a strange thing considering how much time we spend in this guy's shoes. Strong lead performances though, Damon is quite good and you get very good supporting performances from Scott Bakula and Joel McHale as the FBI agents who are basically assigned to manage him. And yeah, it's a really interesting story. I'm just not sure that this was the version of the movie that it should have been. I, I do wonder what might have come out of having someone like Aaron Sorkin or Adam McKay take a shot at this i think that i'm not sure it's soderbergh i i think it is the script more than anything else that has just doesn't have the energy just doesn't have the killer instinct that i think it should have so you think it should have been more along the lines of thank you for smoking yes definitely definitely which was a great film yeah it needed to be willing to take a few more direct shots at the topic rather than mm. it, it it just feels very soft in a strange way mm. it feels like the sort of like Way too cosy a version of the story. Yeah, it doesn't have the necessary teeth. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't have the teeth. It's trying to do it. It's trying to, like, really dig into this and and really analyse this stuff. But it's sort of like an elderly dog sort of trying to gum its prey to death. (laughs) Anyways, that's me done for the week. What about you guys? What have you been watching? So this week, 
We've watched quite a few things, and we've started on a TV show called The Peripheral, which Lawson mentioned last week when we were talking about Chloe Grace Moretz. This indeed stars Chloe Grace Moretz as a young woman whose only escape from a daily grind is playing a super advanced video game, sort of a VR thing. She is such a good player that a company sends her and her brother a new system to test, but it has a surprise in store. There's a lot of things that I can't go into because they're spoilers. That's about all I can give you. This is really interesting. It is executive produced by the creators of Westworld, and it shows. It has a lot of interesting ideas about the future and the relationship between technology and people. Down to the point that Chloe Grace Moretz's character, Flynn, is this really talented player of this game and she works in a 3d printing shop and her brother burton is an ex-soldier who has had this tech put into his body which allows him and his friends to link up and see through each other's eyes when they're on missions and able to control drones with their minds and it actually gives him physical pain a lot constantly so this relationship between people and technology is very well done here and it goes to the peripherals themselves these bodies that these people are put into where they experience every single bit of the pain that the peripheral goes through down to like a character gets degloved yeah. and they feel the pain mm. and it really goes there like that's not even the worst aspect of the sort of body horror element i like this fine but the episodes are like really long and it drags i get what it's going for and while i understand that and it's it's shot and performed really really well like i'm not gonna knock any of that side of it but it's pace it needs to pick up hmm. i it's weird because you're meant to feel like there are lots of mysteries but they didn't hold on to the main mystery at all, and they just tell you. And I'm just sitting here going, okay, so what the actual state of affairs is, is kind of interesting. But how then does that work? And then they just hand wave it by saying, it's too complicated, we won't get into that now. I don't know if that changes How many later episodes have you watched? We're at the end of the second episode, but... Bear in mind, this is two hours... More over two hours. ...into. Mm. A little bit over two hours into this show. And every episode is near an hour long. I like it. It's just a bit much, I think. It's very well made, though. There's a lot of attention to detail on the world building and the way that people like Flynn and Burton live. Mm. The fact that in their town, there's this almost warlord... It's weird to say, like, he used Kinda. to be a car salesman, but has very much gone into having this stranglehold over all crime in this town. Corbel Pickett, played by Lewis Hertham, people would recognize him as Mr. Abernathy from Westworld, Dolores's father. The modern day sequences are set in, like, 2032, I think. So it's like that, a couple of steps into the future thing, but... There's interesting stuff to do with, like, time and timelines and shit like that. I just think it might be a little 
too complicated for its own good, at least so far. No, but this is very interesting. Chloe Grace Moretz does a very amicable job here. She gets to play with a lot of different toys in, from the toy box. She's got a peripheral body herself. She gets to play the fact that her body, after using this tech, has started to betray her. And they get a lot of good stuff out of that and her relationship with her brother, his friends, and their mother. So you would be able to find this on Amazon Prime Video. We also watched a couple of other things. We watched a mini-series, The Color of Magic. I spoke about the audiobook. Yeah. You said during that discussion ago. you weren't going to watch the miniseries. I, I changed my mind. I was like, I'm going to give it a shot, you know? Had you read The Light Fantastic before you saw this? Yes, I have. I recently finished Light okay. Fantastic. Because it does adapt both books, even though yeah. it's yeah. Uh, only named after the first one. Yeah. It is directed by Vardan Jean. It's based on the first two Discworld books, The Color of Magic and The Light Fantastic, as Lawson said. It's the story of a wizard called Rincewind. He's not very good at magic. In fact, he can't actually do any magic, because... One of the eight great spells locked itself in his head when he opened a magic book on a dare, and now it takes up all the space, so no other spells can get in. He is roped into an adventure when he is threatened into being the guide for the disc's first tourist, a little man called Two Flower. Rincewind is played by David Jason, and Two Flower is played by Sean Astin, uh, who everyone would recognize as... Sam from Lord of the Rings. I wonder how often he gets that that like that exact line reading. Sam. Probably a good amount, I wouldn't wonder. Maybe he gets his wife to whisper it to him. Sam. <laughs> it, in the dead of night, he's like, It's me. It's your Sam. Don't you know you're Sam? Yeah, I enjoyed this for what it was. It doesn't have the budget to really sell the things that it wants to sell because the scope of what they're going for is immense. Terry Pratchett is such a detailed writer and such an inventive writer. There are all of these strange, odd ideas that require a high budget to pull off, but they do an amicable job here at portraying these. This is a TV miniseries, and it feels it. There's a very specific tone they're going for. I should just say, it's a TV miniseries of the old school kind, too. It's two 90-minute mm. yeah. episodes. We don't be thinking that this is like a modern-day six- to eight-episode limited series. Yeah, no. This was designed to be aired over two consecutive nights on, the on yeah. I think, ITV or BBC, one of the two. One of the two, yeah. And exactly as Lawson said, it is the classic kind, down to its tone and its pacing. And I've got a soft spot in my heart for that kind of programming, because it allows you to get more than you would from a movie, but it allows you to have just the story there. David Jason is really good as Rincewind, though he's a little bit too old for the part. And Sean Astin's the only person who could play Two Flower, in my eyes. He's got this naivete and this lack of knowledge about how much danger he's truly in. He sticks out like a sore thumb in the way only a Terry Pratchett character could. 
And you've got Christopher Lee voicing Death with every sense of wit that you would remember from Hogfather. He wasn't Death in Hogfather. He wasn't no. in Hogfather, but the character of Death. Yes, the actor. From I forget his name. The actor passed away. He was the guy who who played the Kevin Spacey character in the original House of Cards, the BBC version. Mm. When we get closer to Christmas, we'll be watching Hogfather. Yeah, like John said, this is a pretty faithful adaptation. It makes really serious concessions for time. Hmm. It's, like Lawson said, two 90-minute episodes. They have to be at a brisk fucking pace to get through a lot of this stuff. There are segments missing. Like, the books, by their very nature, the way they were written, was very episodic. So it's kind of like built for a TV show. It's a road trip, basically. And it's built for the TV show sort of setting i would love to see this done with like modern technology in like by netflix or something if like bbc works with netflix on it i think that would turn out really well there was an announcement i think a couple of years ago now that terry pratchett's estate is working with a development company on getting multiple new Discworld tv yeah. shows off the ground well there's the uh, the amazing maurice or something like right. that. right yeah yeah that's a movie that's going to be yes. coming out that's, soon. that's separate from that, and I should say to anyone yeah. who saw The Watch, The Watch is separate from that as well. They had, uh, yeah. Pratchett Estate is not happy with The Watch, from what I can tell. David Jason is brilliant as Rincewind. Bit older than I would have expected, but he has the tone of the character. Rincewind is an admitted coward, and David Jason just plays that incredibly well. He brings a lot of Granville energy from his time on Open All Hours. Yeah. Because Granville was kind of like a witty, kind of acerbic, cowardly character. And in that token, David Jason is perfect. Can I just read you this quote from Neil Gaiman on The Watch? Because people were not happy with The Watch, like they pretty much hated it. This is from Neil Gaiman, who was, of course, a good friend of Terry Pratchett's. He compared the series to, quote, Batman if he's now a news reporter in a yellow trench coat with a pet bat. (laughs) So yeah, stay away Yikes. from that. Stay away from that one. Sean Astin as Two Flower is brilliant. I know a little bit more about the character from the later books than John does, and it's not that he's unaware of danger. It's that danger is exciting, and danger is a new experience. In the in the same sense that you get a little bit of a thrill when you go on a roller coaster, exactly. or it's not that he's unaware of danger. His general philosophy is simply that everything is going to work out the way it should. So he doesn't mind either way. Honestly, Sean Astin is infectious in this role. He, he like, has this wanderlust that you start to feel when you're watching him. I love the way they do the luggage in this. The luggage is, like, this sapient chest that follows Two Flower around that houses all of his stuff that he needs on his travels. When I was listening to the book... I imagine it's got, like, wooden legs and shit. No, it's got, like, people feet coming out of the bottom and it, like, scuttles around the place. It's it's actually quite remarkable that they managed to translate it so well in this miniseries because it really works. The luggage has been described in later Discworld books as half suitcase, half psychopath. The luggage is a lot of fun to me. We get a lot of good supporting turns from Christopher Lee as Death, David Bradley as Cohen the Barbarian, and Jeremy Irons in a surprisingly short role as the patrician of Ank Morpork. Brian Cox does the narration for this, which I think is really nice. I like his talents as narrator. One of the things that was really impressive to me here is how they showed us 
Great Artuan, the world turtle. Yeah. And there's a part near the end of it that is, like, truly one of the greatest adaptations of a Terry Pratchett idea that I've ever seen. It's the end of the main plot to the Light Fantastic, and if anyone knows what that is, like, the purpose of the star, then it's just beautifully realized. And it's so sweet and gorgeous and... Tim Curry is really good as Triman. Yeah, Tim Curry plays the main antagonist, Triman. He's playing exactly the same character as he's played countless times before, which is perfect for this cabal of wizards who just backstab each other constantly. It, it's like the wizards from The Witcher brought up a level, but instead of confronting each other physically, they set up booby traps... And shit, they, like, push each other off of buildings. They're like magic users from The Witcher, but idiots. Yeah. And that's brilliant. Uh, I would love to see a modern adaptation of this. I would like to see Daniel Radcliffe as Rincewind. Mm. It's exactly the kind of thing he'd do. Plus, he could, like, get him for years if they yeah. wanted to come back and do more of them. It's exactly the kind of thing he'd do. He's got the right energy. For it? For the character of Triman, I would get Crispin Glover doing exactly what he did in Pikmin's model for Cabinet of Curiosities. Like that weird voice. And I don't know. I don't know who to get his two flower. Maybe Sean Astin back. Who cares? He can still oh, do it. Oh, who's the dude from... The young bloke from Moonfall. He was in Game of Thrones. Yeah, Bradley James. Yeah, I can see it. I can see it. You, but, you know who I'm talking about. Yeah, uh, yeah. Sam. But this is... Sam. Uh, but this was a great deal of fun it had the really brisk pace so they moved through plot points really fast some of them they weren't able to get to because of just time and budget but yeah i had a great time with this i'm quickly becoming a i was always a fan of terry pratchett but i'm becoming an even bigger fan of terry pratchett now like i said i finished the light fantastic now i'm on to equal rights which is the first in the witches sort of like arc, I suppose you could call it. I'm going through chronologically. So Gaiman was a... He's an entranceway drug, basically. Kind of, like, I guess you could say Good Omens is the entry-level drug that kind of gets you acclimatized. Okay, so we have also started on a Netflix series that we've been really excited for. We have started Wednesday which is a Monday adaptation of the characters from the Adams family, but mainly focusing on... Wednesday. Wednesday <laughs> herself. The show follows Wednesday Adams' years as a student at Nevermore Academy. She's played by Jenna Ortega, where she attempts to master her emerging psychic abilities. Like, she gets visions of the future, and there's, like, a mystery occurring at the Nevermore Academy. John, what do you reckon so far? So this is show run by Tim Burton, and a f- bunch of episodes are directed by him. It's scored by Danny Elfman, but it doesn't really feel like Tim Burton until the end of the first episode, where yeah. you see something and it's like, oh, holy shit. A-, a creature has been killing people in the woods outside of the academy. Yeah, and... When you see it, it's like, oh, okay, Tim Burton, I get it. Honestly, the creature looks deranged. Deranged. Absolutely insane, and I love that. It's a little bit more young adult fiction than other adaptations of The Adams Family have been, but it's got a really good 
interpretation of the family themselves. Jenna Ortega as Wednesday is just perfect. She is taking what Christina Ritchie did in the Addams Family movies and has built upon that with a really interesting version of her character who has started to distrust her parents, played by Catherine Zeta-Jones and Luis Guzman. They are great. She's a little bit more down in the dumps than other Wednesdays have been. She's a little less psychotic than Christina Ritchie's, but still has that... Well, she's more awkward. Yeah, she's a little bit more awkward. Luis Guzman and Catherine Zeta-Jones as Gomez and Morticia are just incredible. Luis Guzman, he isn't as good as Raul Julia. How can you be? Not yet. Yeah. But I have hope. I have hope that we'll see him go off at a point. Raul Julia in those Adams Family movies, he's just peak Gomez for me, but Guzman does a good job. Catherine Zeta-Jones is fantastic as Morticia, particularly a few moments where you sort of just see her move her head wistfully like Morticia would do in the original show. Uh, Thing is fantastic here. Lurch looks perfectly deranged, and in the trailers, we've seen Fred Armisen's version of Uncle Fester. The voice is exactly Perfect. like it was in the original black and white TV show. Perfection. Just incredible. I've really, really dug this so far. It is filling that void that's been missing since Sabrina ended on Netflix. Mm. And it's kind of got the same tone. But what Wednesday has going for it more is that they're able to take these characters in a very fresh direction. Yeah. And you know that I love me some Adam's family. and. It just goes to show how strong the characters are, that they can have many different interpretations yeah. since the original books and still have these really strong characteristics. Like, Gomez is like the quintessential wife guy. But in a good way. I love his energy. Mm. Um, in pretty much every version of Luis Gomez is fantastic. I think a lot of the rest of the cast here are really strong. Christina Ritchie is back as like the... The house mother for Wednesday and her roommate Enid. Gwendolyn Christie is here as the headmistress of Nevermore Academy. With the same energy that she had playing Lucifer. (laughs) Which is a great energy to have her play. A strong young cast here. Yeah. It's much more explicitly supernatural than we've come to expect with the Addams Family. But to be fair, that was always an element. Like in the original series, uh, Morticia would often talk to her spirits... Grandma Adams was a bloody witch. I don't know how you can understand Thing without a supernatural sort of, like, explanation. He's a disembodied hand, for Christ's sake. Thing, Lurch, and Cousin It. Well, Cousin It's just, like, a hairy guy. Yeah, but the voice, though, the really high-speed... It's regional high dialect. ...high-speed, high-pitched... We're only one episode in, but I am really thrilled to keep going with it tonight. And the Danny Elfman score is really fantastic. It's exactly the vibe you'd want from it. There's a version of Paint It Black that they do in the show, which we can't find on streaming services, which makes me angry. Have you noticed, like, that's a very weird thing. Like, to move away from Wednesday for a second, Paint It Black is, like, a really popular song to put in movies and television. They do it in Westworld a bunch of times. They did it in Black Adam earlier this year. They do it here. They did it in the Vin Diesel classic, The Last Witch Hunter. Yeah, it's like, 
To be fair, it's like a great song. Oh yeah. But at some point, we need to branch out into other stuff, guys. Uh, but this version they use here is really good. It's like a cello cover. Out of all of the Stones catalog, it's Paint It Black and Sympathy for the Devil that get used most often. To be fair, they are their best songs. But yeah, this is a really strong series. I highly recommend it to fans of the Addams Family. Or even if you're like a fan of the Monsters, come into this camp, uh, fellow spooky people. And if you're a fan of Tim Burton, there's enough of Burton here yes. that... It feels more like OG Burton more than yeah. modern Burton. Because modern Burton can be kind of like very samey and kind of tryhardy at times. This hits a better mix. Here. This is a little bit more like Dark Shadows, yeah, but yeah. with less weird color stuff. Modern Burton's very hit or miss for me, but to be fair, he's not the only person in charge here. So a lot of his more samey instincts kind of get tampered down by collaborators. Yeah, we don't have Helena Bonham Carter coming in as some kind of... Yes, both his regulars have been wrested away from him, one by divorce, the other from... Other things. <laughs> also involving divorce. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you can check this out on Netflix, the whole thing's up, and I honestly can't wait to get back to it. Lawson, you have a pith take. I do. Uh, I went to the theatre this week, and the actual proper theatre, and saw another stage show. It is the stage musical version of Mary Poppins. It is, of course, based on the P.L. Travers book and the movie that Disney made in the 60s that was based on that book as well, the movie directed by Robert Stevenson. The stage musicals book is written, I should say, by Julian Fellows, creator of Downton Abbey. Oh, so right up your alley. But also Gosford Park. Does anyone liquefy from the inside? <laughs> as with the other versions of this story, it is set in London in 1910, and it follows some unruly children who are being neglected by their parents. They get a new nanny named Mary Poppins, but little do they know that she is an eldritch creature with awesome and terrible powers beyond our ken. Obviously. I don't know how older people don't have that reading. It will be difficult to walk away from this particular version without that reading. <laughs> um, <laughs> she, she makes adult-sized puppets come to life and do a song and dance number at one point in this version. And then, like, oh, a, giant, a giant jack-in-the-box-like rises up over the stage and starts, like, singing in a deep voice. <laughs> No, I hated that in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, I hate it here. But the best, but it's presented as horrifying. The play knows it's horrifying, and in fact it does all of these, like, lightning-flashing-looking things, and it's, it's almost demonic. Oh, thank God, they get it. And in front of it, Mary Poppins <laughs> is the puppet master, because as she raises her hand, the puppet raises its hand, the giant jack-of-the-box does. So... It's like, no, she is in control of this. And there's some other things that she does that are not in the other versions of the story that are, all, are like, oh, we are no match for Mary Poppins. There, but for the grace of Mary Poppins, go we. Like, if she chose, she could wipe us all does, out. Does one of the kids accidentally, like, nick their finger on a butter <laughs> knife or something, and she goes up, like, Dracula, like, their blood is the life. That kind of reminds me of some of the stories I heard about the, um, the Logos Theatre Aslan from the mm. United States. He's like this deranged puppet thing. Like they use the same technology as Warhorse. I'll show you a picture. And apparently like they portray Aslan as fucking terrifying. Like literally scared children. I think it was like a 
It was an adaptation of The Boy and His Horse by C.S. Lewis. I'll send you a picture. It's fucked up. Oh, jeez. It's like a, it's like all metal, but in the style of wood. Yeah. There's like literally holes in the face. Mm. And apparently he had this like deep voice. Like that was like legitimately terrifying to children. I mean, I led with that. That is the most interesting part of it. But the majority of this version of Mary Poppins is pretty disappointing actually it's quite dry it doesn't have the plot or the energy to be this long a stage show and the music is a miss the only good songs are the ones that have returned from the movie all of the new stuff that has been written to surround it is just in one ear out the other you forget it the second the music stops the dancing is a lot stronger they do a lot of like good well choreographed dance numbers and they get a lot of fun stuff out of that and i do love that sort of darker approach that they're taking with some of this stuff i mean in addition to the puppets there's like in instead of the animated creatures that come to life in the uh in the park they do what the book did which is the stone statues coming to life so all these people in stone bodysuits that just start like dancing around and it is it, it is terrifying also that's wicked but not but not as terrifying as when the dolls thing happens because even before the jack-in-the-box turns up like a doll literally crawls out of a dollhouse like a human being crawls out of a hole in the set that that emerges through a dollhouse and that's horrifying like the first thing you see is like this arm that comes lurching through the windows to (laughs) open the front of it did they get like contortionist or something they're definitely gymnasts because they do like flips and things but yeah that's the stuff i all found most interesting and i do find that interesting especially that they've embraced it a whole lot more than the disney movie did which is the sort of prickliness of mary poppins the severity of her that she is a good person she's she's working to help these kids but she's also like you don't fuck with mary poppins like mary poppins fucks with you that's that's how it goes (laughs) she she goes up to the children you step to me, child, and you will rule the day why that you, you were why born. Why are you voicing Mary Poppins like she's 80 years old? She's like 30 in those stories. I say oh, come 30, on. But she's, she's like 100 she, years yes, old. She is not human. She has been around for many a year, but she, she presents as a young woman. She's been away since before the breaking back of her when silence. Cavemen, back when cavemen invented fire, they stood around campfires to be away from the dark where Mary <laughs> Poppins resides. Yeah. And the set design's very good as well. There's a lot of moving sets. There's a lot of transforming sets. That stuff's a lot of fun. The house that the family lives in is framed as sort of a, a, a sort of a dollhouse, basically. Like, the front of it opens up to reveal a sort of oh, cutaway. Nice. Which then, I don't know if it's intentional or not, but it, it definitely does sort of back up my interpretation of these people as being just playthings for Mary Poppins. Oh, sure. Sort of gives you a hereditary-esque vibe. Yeah. Um... <laughs> But the most impressive thing, really, is is the incredible amount of like magic tricks done during the show, yeah. like to to pull off Mary Poppins' sort of magic of all of the the bottomless bags that she pulls all of the furniture out of. I still don't know how they accomplish that because clearly, clearly, there's something in place where she moves the bag to different locations and she puts it on the floor and then she reaches down and she pulls out like a giant coat rack and that's like. That's so fucking yeah. wild. But then because- she, like, moves the bag and puts it on a, a dressing table, and then she pulls out a big lamp. So clearly those items are being stored in the stage, but when she moves the bags away, I can't see a trapdoor. So I obviously mm. there is one, but you can't see it. And there's other stuff like that that's just, like, 
that's so complex. There's other stuff that's like really remarkable and sort of gravity defying in the way that the the numbers actress are put levitates on. without the use of wires and starts speaking backwards <laughs> gibberish. <laughs> But there's, there's a lot of stuff that's clearly dependent on the two main actors, Mary Poppins and Bert the Chimney Sweep. It's clearly dependent on those actors doing, like, literal stage magic on stage. <laughs> like a, a, a 2D painting that Bert is painting on, you know, he's just painting it, and then Mary Poppins comes up to him and says, Oh, I'm a- I drew these for you, Mary Poppins. And he, like, reaches, grabs on the painting and rips the flowers away, and they turn into three-dimensional, like, bouquet that he gives her. I don't know Jesus. how you do that. But, like, those actors must have had to train yeah, significantly. Yeah, it, it's because he is chief acolyte <laughs> to the Blood Witch. They've tapped into something darker. That stuff's the most interesting. Uh, and the cast was good. There's no one super famous, but Patty Newton, wife of Bert, was the bird yeah. lady. Oh. She didn't really have much to do. I thought that everyone was a bit overreacting when everyone sort of starts sort of screaming and whistling when she came on stage at the end. I'm like, all right, but what did she really do? I mean, you just... Like, not to turn my guns on Patty Newton, but like, well, I don't know. Is it nice or is it kind of condescending? If you've not really done anything and people are screaming and applauding for you, like, yeah, we remember you from the 80s. I just think it's nice she's there. Sure. I would have liked it more if they had actually given her something to do instead of just singing the same lines, you know, tuppence, tuppence. Over and over and over again in, like, the three scenes that she's in. If they had given her, like, the job of the head maid that runs the house, mm. the angry one who's sort of just, like, over everyone's bullshit. That's a meaty, that's a meaty role. Or that there's actually another... Again, the darkness of Mary Poppins. And I, I get the impression that some of this is taken from the book and some of it's invented. This part of it's invented, but Mary Poppins, like, leaves at one point and comes back later on. And they've already replaced her with this, like, truly awful nanny, like, Miss Trunchable from Matilda level, like, monster. (laughs) And it turns into this, like, horrifying showdown between Mary Poppins and evil nanny, where Mary Poppins, like, again, the puppet imagery, takes control of her body and, like, sort of pulls her around the stage with magic before forcing her out the door. I'm like, that's horrifying. And it raises the question of how much anyone in this play has free will, whether they are all just acting out Mary Poppins' little dollhouse toys, you know? But yeah, I don't know. If they if they had given Patty Newton that role, I don't know. I just I just thought that the play makes such a big deal out of it, and mm. the audience was eating it all up, and I was sitting there saying, D- doesn't this feel a little like a waste of Patty Newton? Yeah, tad demeaning. Yeah. Anyways, I can't really recommend it, given the how expensive theatre tickets are. Mm. It's not good enough. But if they did a pro shot, then definitely... I would recommend watching the freaky stuff, at least. Not for children. Yeah. Oh, you would, you would hate it, Harley. Like, the moment that that human-sized puppet crawled out of that tiny little dollhouse and started, like, singing in a high-pitched voice and, like, dancing around and then a jack-in-the-box, like, the size of 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 Kong in the, in the Broadway <laughs> theatre at the end of King Kong, like, rose up and, like, literally places his hands on the roof of the house set and starts singing like this. I was like, oh, jeez, Harley would have a heart attack. Fuck that! (laughs) Then the stage goes completely pitch black, (laughs) air raid sirens start, and his eyes become spotlights. It would feel like I'm living through a creepypasta. Anyways. With my hyper-realistic eyes. Anyways, that's my piss take. So that's what we've seen within the week. Now we will play for you the trailer to Jennifer's Body. 
going out tonight. Wear something cute, okay? You always do what Jennifer tells you to do. It's just that I like the same things that she likes. Hey, Jennifer. You look really pretty. Why don't you just come by my place? This is random. This isn't really your house, is it? You can play mommy and daddy. No way. share your bed when we have slumber parties. Jennifer's evil. I know. No, I mean, she's actually evil. Not high school evil. Chip is looking really cute to me lately. How is he tasting these days? You are never a good friend. You could have anybody that you want. Hi, Chip. You're killing people. No, I'm killing Boys. Are you scared? I only murder boys. I go both ways. I will finish you if I have to. Okay. You can barely finish gym class. That was the trailer for Jennifer's Body. It is a horror comedy directed by Karen Kusama, and it follows Anita, played by Amanda Seyfried, better known to her friends and family as Needy. She's a little shy and reserved, but she's happy with her social circle. Her boyfriend is a dopey guy named Chip, played by Johnny Simmons, who she loves, but the sun her earth revolves around is her best friend Jennifer, played by Megan Fox. Needy and Jennifer have been friends since they were little girls, and even though their interests and personalities diverged as they grew older, they remain as close as it is possible for friends to be. That's why Needy is so disturbed when, after a frightening incident involving a fire and a creepy rock band at their small town's only bar, Jennifer begins to act strangely. And by strangely, I mean rocking up at Needy's house in the dead of night, covered in blood and vomiting black ooze. The next day, Jennifer acts like everything's fine, but she's different. She's crueler and has a harder edge. And just in case Needy didn't have enough to worry about, a bunch of boys from her high school start turning up murdered and cannibalised. The more Needy thinks about it, the more she grows suspicious of that rock band, Low Shoulder. Led by a dirtbag named Nikolai Wolf, played by Adam Brody, the band coerced Jennifer into driving off with them in their van, and that was the last time Needy saw her until the Black Ooze incident. Determined to get to the bottom of what has happened to her best friend, Needy starts to investigate, but she soon discovers, as I'm sure literally everyone listening has already realised, that Jennifer and the murders might be connected. Worst of all, Needy begins to suspect that her bestie not being herself isn't the biggest problem. She might not be human anymore either. So, before we get too deep into this, why don't we each go around and give our timed 30-second thoughts on what we think of Jennifer's body. Why don't you start us off, Sean? You ready? Yep. Three, two, one, go. This movie has had a cultural resurgence and re-evaluation in the past few years, and this is my first time watching it since then and since reading more about the making of the film and the way that it was very poorly advertised. I understand what this movie is going for now. This is a story about relationships between young women and how mean they can sometimes get, along with other things. It's a very dense film. All right, you ready, Harley? Yep. Three, two, one, go. I had a good time with this. 
Uh, like John said, it's our first time watching it since the cultural evaluation being taken place. I don't know if I'm completely sold on it myself. I think it's quite good, and I think the script is a bit witty. The performances are great, but I just think that it's a bit too... a bit too acerbic with some of the dialogue. It, it just keeps me at a bit of a remove with the dialogue. The story, I'm in for, but the dialogue is a bit too much. All right. I like the movie. I don't love it. I appreciate everything it's going for. I appreciate the choices that it's making in terms of theme. I really like the dialogue. I really like the writing. I'm a Diablo Cody fan, but I think that there's just a little too much going on in this movie. Although I will say that I appreciate that it is going for so much more than it might initially appear to be, especially given how it was advertised. Uh, and I do enjoy all the performances, with the exception, the notable exception, of Megan Fox. Uh, so, before we begin, I have a production history for Jennifer's Body. Following the huge success of Juno, Fox Atomic was eager to work with breakout screenwriter Diablo Cody again, and Juno director Jason Reitman wanted to remain involved as well. He's a producer on this movie. The script for it leaked pretty early. Some blogs wrote reviews of the script, and Fox did their best to scrub it from the internet, but uh, yeah, they weren't wholly successful. Cody's intent was to subvert the usual gender politics of horror. I have a quote here from her. A key reason for writing the film was to bring to the screen a new way of expressing the intensity of female bonds. The idea was to literalise these bonds as something almost parasitic, hence the nickname Needy for Amanda Seyfried's character. Believe it or not, it was originally supposed to be a dark, serious take and not a comedy. I have a quote here from Cody. When I first set out to write this, I intended to write something very dark, very brooding, a traditional slasher movie, and then I realised about a third of the way into the process I was incapable of doing that because the humour just kept sneaking in. I have a macabre sense of humour. Before Megan Fox was cast as Jennifer, Blake Lively was considered. She had to turn it down, though, because of conflicts with Gossip Girl that she was a star on at the time. And this was another movie that tried to outrun the 2007 to 2008 Writers Guild of America strike. Uh, this one didn't succeed, however. Filming was pushed into 2008 as a result of it not being ready to shoot. In the lead-up to release, Courtney Love had a bizarre Twitter meltdown regarding this movie. Uh, apparently, she had a song named Jennifer's Body, and uh, Diablo Cody asked her if it was okay to use the name. And she said, yeah, fine. But then apparently Courtney Love thought Diablo Cody was not being publicly grateful enough. And so uh, she, she went nuts on Twitter. When I say uh, many tweets, I'm talking just, I'm looking at this screenshot. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25 tweets over the course of about an hour and a half. Oh, that's, that's, that's much too many. Yes. Some of them include, ah, I've been Becky Sharped, so tank over the weekend, people like that fall down, not up, don't know why, she's too sensitive, she won't sustain evil. Okay. Courtney, you right. I mean, she used the song, and another song cue Violet for 10C, I'm sure with perfect upbringing and conformist nature, she neglected mention. What? What screams conformist about Diablo Cody? 
My own kid asked me today, Mummy, didn't you write a song called Jennifer's Body? I was mortified. 94 was a while ago, but fuck. Yeah, was a while ago. A lot of those things are not the most grammatically correct of text of no. Twitter things. Anyways, the movie came out on the 18th of September 2009 in the United States. Its widest release there was in 2,738 theatres, and it opened number five against Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, The Informant, and something called Love Happens. It financially underperformed. It made $31.5 million worldwide on a $16 million budget, and it was the 147th highest grossing movie of 2009. Perhaps as a result of that underperformance, it didn't receive a theatrical release in Australia. It made its debut here straight to DVD and Blu-ray on the 31st of March 2010. Critics were predictably bewildered because, of course, they would be. Look at this movie. They ha- it has a 46% rating on Rotten Tomatoes, and the critics' consensus there reads, Jennifer's body features occasionally clever dialogue, but its horror comedy premise ultimately fails to be consistently funny or scary enough to be satisfying. Audiences also reacted negatively. They gave it a C-minus cinema score, which for a cinema score is pretty bad. Uh, you don't usually get much lower than that. The movie did get some nominations and uh, wins from a few places, although the ones that, for our purposes, are the best indicator of uh, the movie's success are the MTV Movie Awards, in which uh, Amanda Seyfried won Best Scared as Shit Performance, and it was also nominated for Best WTF Moment when Megan Fox vomits a mysterious black ooze. Uh, at the Teen Choice Awards, it won Choice Movie Actress for Horror or Thriller for Megan Fox, and it was also nominated for Choice Movie Actor Horror Thriller for Adam Brody. And lastly, uh, also showing the divisive nature of it, it was also nominated at the Razzie Awards for Worst Actress for Megan Fox. Oh, bullshit. I don't know. I'm kind of with them on that one. What was the competition? Let me go and see. Razzie's 2010. Because... Because when it comes to this sort of thing, I always have to judge compared on what the competition for the award is. The winner was Sandra Bullock in All About Steve. Uh, also nominated Beyonce for a movie called Obsessed. Miley Cyrus for uh, Hannah Montana, the movie. Sarah Jessica Parker for for Did You Hear About the Morgans? And then Megan Fox. who was actually nominated for both Jennifer's Body and Transformers Revenge of the Fallen. Mm. Winner, however, of Worst Actor was the Jonas Brothers for the Jonas Brothers 3D concert experience. (laughs) The movie, as we have already mentioned, has enjoyed a recent critical reappraisal. In a 2018 article by Constance Grady for Vox, the writer analyses the phenomenon and she argues that the Me Too movement triggered a transformation for the movie into a sort of forgotten feminist classic. I have a quote here. In a post-hashtag Me Too world... The implications of this story look uncomfortably familiar. It's the story of a group of powerful men sacrificing a girl's body on the altar of their own professional advancement, and it's also the story of them using her torment as a bonding activity. Cody, for her part, believes that the film was mismarketed. There was a heavy focus on men when the film was made for, not exclusively, but in large part, for women. Director Karen Kusama revealed in an interview, quote, The marketing department wanted Megan Fox to do live chats with amateur adult performance sites. And I was like, I'm begging you not to go to her with this idea. She will become so dispirited. 
It was fascinating to have the writer be female, the director be female, the stars be female, and my head executive be female. And then we get to the top of the mountain, all those male marketing people. It was crushing. Mm. Contemporary reviews were also laced with a troubling undercurrent that reflects that gender divide. An article for We at the time analysed the reaction and found a distinct gender split. I'm quoting here from an article written by Vic Holtraman. Quote, there were many more reviews by men, 77, than women, 26. Here's the breakdown. Male movie reviewers, 39% liked it, 61% disliked it. Female movie reviewers, 54% liked it, 46% disliked it. Uh, In addition, this article found that female critics were more likely to engage with the themes of the movie, while men were more likely to talk about how they didn't find it funny or scary enough. Mm. Anyways, that is the production history for Jennifer's Body. And uh, why don't you start us off here, guys, because you have seen this movie before and you didn't really get it the first time. And I find myself interested in that because this is the first time I've watched it. And, of course, this reassessment has already gone underway. I have no idea how I would have reacted to it the first time, whether I would have seen the themes there or not. I already knew that this movie was was dealing with this kind of subject matter. So uh, I would like to, I'd be interested to see what you guys thought of it the first time through. Well, for me, it's, I didn't hate it the first time. Not even no. close. I just didn't understand it. Not fully. I always thought that the hatred it received was overblown. Because generally, that's how I feel about most things. And I just wasn't as socially conscious as I am now. I just wasn't as aware. I was a young teenager when this came out, after all. I do remember watching this movie and not understanding why everyone was getting so rank about it. Particularly, the bit that got to me when we first watched it was just how horrible the... how horrible Jennifer's death was. The fact that she just got stabbed to death by this bunch of arseholes and... I was confused why people didn't understand that that was a very terrifying thing for them to portray on the screen because it's a literalization of stuff that women have to go through all the time. Being sort of pushed down and have their lives, in a sense, be sacrificed for the betterment of dudes. I will say, though, while I get why you guys didn't necessarily see it the first time because you were young teenagers... I don't see how adults yeah. who review and analyse movies for a living didn't. Um, it's not like they're being particularly subtle about it. No. I, I don't know. Maybe I am just speaking through the benefit of having my 2022 glasses on. That I find it difficult to believe, although maybe that was the case. The blind spots really were that big that they couldn't see this. Certainly, I've come to realise that all of this stuff is a little more recent than I had thought it was, like going back and watching some of these movies from 2009, and they're just still throwing around, even in this movie, throwing around the R word. Um, Able slurs, like, abound in this. So, yeah, the 14 years since this movie has come out, I mean, it feels like a lot has happened in that period, apparently. But still, I mean, it's not like it's, this movie is trying to hide its themes no. or what its opinions are. So I'm, I question how the people viewing this movie were, how closely they were viewing it. I mean, I suppose that might tie into sort of the way criticism was at that time. Like, it's really only 
in the last, again, in the last, I don't know, six or seven years that horror has started to get respect from the mainstream critical establishment, whether that affected the critical reaction to this movie, whether most mainstream critics went in going, oh, it's a horror movie. I'm not going to really... I think the main thing about it was a bunch of people saw Megan Fox's name on the poster and instantly thought it was going to be a completely different kind of film. Well, it was the way it was marketed to. It was marketed as, like, hot girls being hot and here is some scary stuff and blood and gore. Come on in, teenage boys. And then the movie starts with Amanda Seyfried kicking orderlies and stuff. And it's all told as a flashback. Well, we should... That reminds me. Um, So, did you guys watch the theatrical cut or the unrated cut? We watched the version that's on Disney+. The best way to tell is once the guy that gets killed in the woods, when J.K. Simmons finds his body, do, do you then have a sequence where the kid's mother and father are standing there and the kid's dad played by the voice of Patrick from SpongeBob SquarePants, screams at the yeah. top of his lungs that he is going to uh, nail the killer's balls to a wall or something. No. You watch the theatrical But cut. I have seen that clip. And it's great because it sounds exactly like Patrick yeah. from SpongeBob. You hear me, you bastard? I'll cut off your nutsack and nail it to my door! Like one of those lion door knockers rich folks got! I think it's unfortunate that you watch the theatrical cut because I think having looked at the stuff that the unrated cut adds, it is so much better. And I will get to that in a minute. I will just say right up front that I think the best scene in the movie is not in the theatrical cut. Mm. But we can talk about that um, when we get a bit deeper into it. But it, it adds a lot more stuff. Just It adds a lot more thematic stuff. It adds a lot more themes and uh, stuff on the themes and the characters. It contextualizes some of the stuff better, especially the stuff regarding uh, grief and reacting to trauma. Because that, that's the other thing. The weird sort of like post 9-11 thread uh-huh. that's going on in this movie, yeah. where like they talk about 9-11 in the movie. There are the, the drinks that are at the, the bar. Yeah. But then this event at the club is sort of then treated thematically as this town's 9-11, you know, this horrible thing that happened and wiped out a large section of the community and how everyone reacts to that, you know, the sort of the, the, the dodgy tribute song, the um, performative grief of some people as if they're trying to outplay the people having the actual grief. And it's interesting because it shows that this small town of Devil's Cattle is at the sort of back end of its performative grief about 9-11 by the fact that there's a commemorative beverage mm. for it and you gotta drink it quick otherwise it turns brown yeah the colors start to blend of the different alcohols because it's like red red white and blue but then they start to blend and become brown which is like isn't that like symbolism <laughs> yeah that's like a trivialization of a horrific event that happened to people and then the town goes through that entire thing. I do have to say, I, I love the sequence where Needy is narrating that the town was finally coming together. And it was all the scenes of the kids in the high school being all chummy and friendly and supportive. I just thought that was hilarious. I mean, there is a lot of symbolism there. Like like I said, the, the red, white and blue sort of merging to brown is that, you know, the, that's symbolic, obviously, of sort of 
the United States coming together after this really awful tragic event that killed so many people and was really, truly horrifying. And then that all end up going the way that it did with the Iraq war, with the Afghanistan war, with the, the country itself splitting into, into the political situation that it is now. I mean, that's, that's a very symbolic thing all in the one thing. Like, oh yeah, this, this 9-11 tribute drink, you've got to drink it quickly or it just destroys itself immediately. But that is, I think, one of the big things where Cody overreaches, I think, with the script mm. is this whole, thing on grief i i get what she's doing i get that she is sort of like analyzing a culture's response to grief i think a particularly strident takedown of those kinds of like tribute songs which you saw so many of in the days following 9-11 the years following 9-11 it's, it's such it was a funny parody of them people profiting in in some ways from this awful event and again the performative nature which is not at all to say that you know that the, the grief and the cultural trauma surrounding 9-11 is trauma, it was performative. It absolutely was not. But, like, the way that some people, like, used that grief and trauma as a social thing to mm. move themselves up. Enrich themselves. Yes, exactly. Uh, like Low Shoulder does. That's a cool idea. It's an interesting idea. It's got absolutely nothing to do with... The main plot. This, the main plot of these two teenage girls. And when you think about it, it didn't really need it at all. I mean, I suppose in the one sense, it keeps low shoulder in the story until they turn up again at, uh, at the prom. But if there was no fire at that club, if Jennifer just did go with them, as it looks like she was already going to do before the fire started, mm. then really does the plot change at all? If we don't have that thread of grief running through? Or, or can we, do we even need the... The fire plot at all? Can we just have the um, murders of the boys trigger that kind of reflection um, in the community? I don't know. It's just this is my big one big criticism of the movie, and it's one I think I'm going to return to a fair bit. Uh, it is biting off a lot too much. Mm. And I feel like if Cody had sent it in and really just picked a couple of things, picked that sort of, you know, teenage angst relationship between two young women relationship between Needy and her boyfriend and sort of the feminist gender and sexual politics aspect of all of that and really drilled down into that over getting involved with all this other stuff I just that I just don't feel that the movie has time for. Mm, sure. But well, I do like what it's doing around that, how it has the community sort of come together and then split apart and fracture somewhat. J.K. Simmons' character is hilarious. In yeah, this. he's just randomly got a hook for a hand. He's got, like, burns on his neck. He's even addressed. No one even mentions yeah. it. And he's, like, he's doing his weirdest possible Canadian accent. I just love when he gets in front of the class and is talking about the tragedy. <laughs> and the only way that people know this Ahmet kid is Ahmet from India. Yeah, the exchange student. And, and, like, they don't even bother trying to learn his last name. <laughs> He's just a thing that is being propped up by these people as a symbol of grief. Well, like, that's the other thing. It's like, we can't let the fire win. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's, that's the what? thing. Now, more than ever, put aside your teenage concerns about who's a cool dude or who's a hoe. We can't let that damn fire win. That's the thing that got me watching this when he said, 
We can't let that damn fire win. It's like, babe, it won. It killed the people and it fucked off. It's the, yeah, the it has it's a fire. It didn't have like yeah. a, a plan or a motive or an ideological game. It's not coming back. This isn't final destination. That is the most underlining of the of the nine eleven subtext that they do. I suppose this is probably as good a spot to talk about my favourite scene in the movie, which you guys did not see. Because I think that it is this scene that does the best job of tying in that theme about grief and about performative grief as opposed to, like, real deeply felt grief and sort of tying that into the main plot of uh, Needy and Jennifer and sort of really stopping to be like, no, beneath all of this nonsense, this is awful and real and happening to people. So this was in the extended cut and it is after Colin's death, the goth kid. So they're at Colin's funeral and his goth friends, like, start to make a scene while his mother and father look on. We're gathered here to celebrate the life of Colin Gray. He was plucked from the prime <laughs> Colin! Take me with you! I belong down there! In the darkness! No, Kevin. Those are just his earthly remains. He's among the dark angels of the realm now. Fly, Colin. Fly into the firmament. Can't <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay, just talk like this, can You think so? Yeah, you're right. I'm pretty sure my son wouldn't have liked being eaten by a fucking cannibal and buried before his 18th birthday. Wow, you must have known him so well. Chill. By the time they found Colin in that godforsaken house, he looked like lasagna with teeth. I don't know, I had to identify the remains. My boy is not in the realm of the undead. He is not flying around in the firmament on magical wings of flame. He's in an overpriced rosewood box that's headed six feet downtown. Shove it up your asses, kids. I got the monopoly on pain. <laughs> well done. Jesus Christ! It goes from hilarious to, like, legitimately sad. But yeah, you see why that's my favourite scene in the movie? Yeah, I get it. Oh, yeah. Why is that cut? Why is that... Really, you can't have the minute and a half extra to have that in the theatrical cut? It's... I feel like it's vital to not only the themes, but to, like, connecting some of the things and making it all work. And also tonally as well. But, like, the the actress in that, uh, I wrote her name down, Gabrielle Rose, who really hasn't done much other than this. She's done a lot of, like, bit parts and things, but she's not not a name or anything. To, like, full-on, like, Michael Byrne, Leland Orser level of, like, coming in for one scene and just, like, totally blowing the doors off. She's extraordinary in that scene, and and her husband as well, Adrian Howe, who's in the background, does a lot with his face. I love, I love the way that he sort of like closes his eyes and winces when the goth kids get up. <laughs> <laughs> but he is the the guy who is Haytham Kenway in the 
Assassin's Creed series. No way! Yeah. So it's this great little scene that I didn't even consider the idea that it wouldn't have been in the theatrical cut until I went and actually looked up what was in the unrated cut so I, I knew what we were what our differences were going to be if you hadn't seen it. Jesus. And it's like, and, I, and as soon as I saw that, I was like, what? But why? How do you remove the best scene? Exactly. And I think that that is such a great scene. It is funny, definitely, yeah. with all of the goth kid stuff. But it's also so powerful with what then happens with the, the mother and the father. I think it's just such a, a well-put-together scene. And it is it is crucial to the story. It is crucial to the themes of the movie and connecting those themes of, like, grief and performative grief with what's going on with Jennifer and Needy. That Jennifer is is witnessing this as she watches the funeral from far. And it's a reminder there that in that beneath all of this sort of teenage angst, it sort of drives the hammer home. Like, no, these are just kids with, you know, families. I, I like when she murders that jock guy and he's just out to set it up. He's out on the football field weeping, openly weeping because one of his mates died in the fire. She comes up, convinces him to go into the woods with her. Well, Jennifer preys on that. Yeah. These animals all come to watch this weird thing happen. I'm pretty sure the raccoons are just being perfect. Like Snow White yeah. style. They come in to check it out. Like you see the raccoon like do its little hand thing, it's like, oh no, that that do, that <laughs> will do and, and, and she just rips into him because they taste better scared. But think about how that matches with what happened with Jennifer. Think about it. That it's the same. It's the same behavior. It is the predator preying on someone who's just been through a trauma and is in a deep state of shock. Mm. Yeah. Then being taken to the woods and killed. Um, it's the same thing. And yeah. that's quite interesting as a as a mm. thing. And I wish that, like, again, I feel like there's just so much threaded through here that is really strong and really high quality. But I feel like some of it gets lost. Or gets a little unfocused because of all of the stuff surrounding it that has sort of bloated the film up from being as lean and mean as it should be. Mm, yeah, I do. I do love how when he screams, J.K. Simmons hears it and is like, "Let it out, kids." I do like J.K. Simmons in this, even though it is kind of weird for him to like. He he's so much a bigger name now than he was then. He he's was, just kind of there because he was in Juno. Yeah. And because he was, like, he was J.K. Simmons, he was in everything. He was a, a working actor. That's one of the reasons why when he got nominated for Whiplash, he won, is because J.K. Simmons is apparently, like, a really nice guy, and he's worked with everybody. So <laughs> when he turns up on your ballot, he's like, well, I know J.K., I worked with him, he's a great guy. He's also really good. He's really good, he's done the work, he's, he's put in the effort over decades, and uh, everyone knows him and everyone loves him. I mean, the fact that he went up for the nomination for Whiplash, it's like, oh, it makes sense that he got it. He was incredible in Whiplash. Whiplash was But incredible. I like how his character, like, clearly has a history. Yeah. Yes, a history of trauma that is just never mentioned. That's what makes him probably the best side character in this thing. Yeah. Just how weird he is. Again, I feel like there's more there. I feel like there's a greater focus if only we could cut some of the chaff around the edges, because... It's Vietnam, right? It's clearly Vietnam. It's gotta be. He's of that age. It looks like he's got napalm berms on his neck. It plays in with all of the trauma. It plays in with the sort of the cultural fracturing of the, the grief and the trauma that events like that have. Like, 
there's something there. There's always something there in every corner of this movie. It is its greatest asset and its greatest flaw is that it is so packed full of detail that it cannot hope to organize all of that detail. And I mean, all of the side characters have depth. The The band has some depth. The kid who she eats in the woods has some depth. Colin himself has depth to him as a character. He's not just a one-dimensional goth kid. He's he's singing along to a punk version of Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head. These are people. These are just legitimate people going through a terrifying, horrific situation. Even a touch that was totally unneeded that Cody still, still puts in. Like, when Needy kills Jennifer at the end, we could have just cut away to her in the cell. Like, it would have been fine. Mm. We would have understood it perfectly. We didn't need the scene of Jennifer's mother being seen for the first time in the movie, coming in to find her daughter dead and her best friend yeah. holding the knife. But we get it anyway, just to, just to remind us, like, no, no, this is awful. There were consequences. Isn't that Nev Campbell? No, no, it isn't. Just looked a lot like her. But, like, we get that, that scene, which is, again, we get the, it's like the funeral scene. It's like the scene with Patrick Starfish. <laughs> Like, that's the only one of those three scenes that doesn't get cut, but I think all of those are actually really valuable scenes for the movie. I'm a a little disappointed that of all of the stuff that they could have cut for time, they cut the stuff that actually did some real heavy lifting for them. Uh, I think we should move on to the leads here. Yeah, I I think it was worth getting talking about all that stuff around it because yeah. it is the set dressing for this this middle section. But um, okay, so we're all in agreement that Amanda Seyfried's fantastic. I assume. Oh yes. Oh absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. She's doing brilliant work. Do you reckon she's an unreliable narrator? Because I don't think there's anything to suggest that she's not. You know. Well, there's nothing to suggest really to suggest that she is either. Mm. But. If you think about it, you you can pull the whole thread of this movie and really unravel it as you want to with the fire at the club. Mm. You know, how much of what happened after that, if you want to go that direction, how much of what happened after that really happened? Or did she just go crazy? Well, I I tend to, like, sit in the middle ground. It's like, I do think a lot of it happened, but the way that she's framed it for us might not be as reliable, you know? I don't know. I tend to just I tend to just take it at face value personally. Yeah. I don't think that there's enough in the movie other than sort of a, a that one point of like neat delineation if you want to take that route at the at the club fire. Other than that one point, I don't think there's any place to latch on to it being uh, anything other than as it's presented. Especially given that she punches a hole in the wall of the asylum and levitates out at the end. I mean, yeah. It's just for me, I don't think that stuff in the asylum was necessary for the film. No, that's true. I think I think actually it, it blunts some of the impact because we know where it's going before it, yeah. Yeah. it heads there. We might not know it at the beginning, but as the end approaches and we remember the photo that we saw of um, what's-his-face, the boyfriend that was in her room at the beginning, I figure out way before it happens that he's not going to survive this movie. I figure out that obviously she's going to kill Jennifer. I think that if that had been built up to, naturally, if we didn't have that foreknowledge, or if we had the foreknowledge in the sense that we were hearing Jennifer's narration, but we didn't see her in the asylum at the start, and then... Needy's narration. Right, yes, sorry. And then at the end, 
when the murder happens, you just cut to like her in the asylum and she's been saying all of this in group or something. That's mm. when she attacks mm. the nurse. That's when she gets put in the cell and that's when she busts out. Yeah. It just would have preserved a little more of the, I, I don't know. It's, there is that feeling of approaching doom, but whether, whether they kind of want to do that Romeo and Juliet thing where you know everyone's doomed from the start. But I feel like in this instance, it doesn't work because it just feels like it could have been so much more haunting if we saw it all unravel the way we did without any foreknowledge. And I think it sort of blunts the theme somewhat that Needy gets the powers and is able to bust out and kill Low Shoulder. Mm. I think it would work better thematically that they do get away with it. Yeah, but you don't want them to. And then, you don't well, want, you don't them, want to, them to, but that like, is, course, that but... is the balancing act. Like, we said it before when we discussed Mute. You said it before when we discussed Mute, Harley. I was in complete disagreement with you. <laughs> I get that you want you want to see the bad guy punished, yeah. but I don't think narratively it's the most interesting. Like, Mute, okay. It didn't really hurt the themes of the story for yeah. the bad guy to get it in Mute. But here it does. Uh, especially watching this in a post-Me Too sort of yeah. lens. It just seems a little too neat, mm. is what I'm saying. So, let's talk about the relationship between Needy and Jennifer, because I think that that's a very interesting element to it, because Jennifer's really not that nice to her. Like, you get the feeling like that's kind of the general interaction between them, but it's still not great. It's like a toxic sort of relationship. I feel like there's a lot of Jennifer that is veiled in um, in more subtextual commentary on the, yeah. the feminist angle and the treatment of women. Hmm. I get the impression that the intent for the Jennifer character is that she is behaving the way she thinks society yeah. expects her to. Yeah, and that's what I was getting from the performance, that she breaks out of that stuff when she's at her most vulnerable. And... That's when she's being murdered. If there were some more moments of that, then I think it would have worked a little more. That is the crucial Jennifer scene, is yeah. the murder. But, like, when I said before, we're all in agreement that Amanda Seyfried is great, right? What what I was going to lead to before we got sidetracked was, and Megan Fox? <laughs> um, I think she does a good job here. I don't. I'm more in the Razzie's camp of there's no depth to this, really. I feel like I'm seeing the surface of that character at all times. I'm on the middle ground here because she does have that scene where she's being murdered, um, and that's effective. It's effective, but it's still surface. We're not seeing the mean girl thing crack and seeing. Oh yeah, I get the, it. I get what you're saying. And seeing what's underneath, we're just seeing it as Amanda Seyfried's character would might as well have been Amanda Seyfried's character. Like nothing about that is Jennifer specific. Yeah, I understand. Point. But what I'm trying to say is, I don't think it's as bad as you reckon. But I also don't think that I hate to say it, but Megan Fox is miscast. Look, look let's be blunt. She's not a very good actress. She never was. There's a reason she does direct-to-video action movies no one sees now. She was good in This Is 40. She was, sure, but, like, to go from being the lead in Transformers movies and this to being, what, the sixth-build supporting character in the most underseen Judd Apatow comedy three years later, I mean, that's... I think this is her best performance. Sure, but, like, again, that's... 
I don't want to turn my guns on Megan Fox too much. Everyone else has already turned their guns on Megan Fox. I don't need to add my ammunition to it. But I think she is actively bad in places of this movie. I think that she is pretty bad during the points where she's being the mean girl, the demon girl. I definitely don't see any of the cunning and the strategy that we're clearly supposed to see from Jennifer in the later stages of the movie. I don't really see at all the conflict between the Jennifer part of her wanting to protect Needy and the demon part of her wanting to eat her. No, that that is missing. Basically, what I'm getting at is I think all of the stuff that Megan Fox fares okay in is not not because of her, it's because of the script sort of buoying her. It's because of the high-quality nature of those particular scenes uh, buffering her along when she's not really giving much. If you had someone like, say, Emma Stone, or if you had, like, she would have been a little old for it at this point, but, like, um, Rachel McAdams doing the Regina George thing, Mm. well, there you've got depth. And, again, I don't want to criticise Megan Fox, but she's not an actress that brings depth to pretty much anything. I get why she was cast. When you look at her previous roles and just her the idea of her as a, her of her as a performer, it makes sense. Yes, the idea of her makes sense in this role. I just don't think the execution is as good as it could be. Okay, if you had to cast someone else, like full stop, who do you cast? I actually don't think I would cast Emma Stone because Emma Stone actually strikes me as a little more of a needy than a yeah, Jennifer. Yeah, because you, you want to get someone who has that sort of baggage as a performer. You know what I mean? I'm just not entirely certain of who you get. Maybe Miley Cyrus. Well, no, she would have been Mila Kunis. Mila, Mila Kunis. Kunis, yeah. Yeah, Mila Kunis. They, there we go. We solved it. It's all right, everyone. We got it. It's Mila Kunis. <laughs> Maybe Aubrey Plaza. Yeah, Aubrey Plaza would have been good. Someone who has like that kind of history as an actor... Because that's what it's trading on for the role. But you also need someone who can play the levels. I understand why she's cast from like a studio financial point of view. But from a creative point of view, I think it does the movie a disservice. I do like how the movie is shot. Yeah, very good stylistic choices. You know me, I love the Appalachian sort of vibe of places like that. Uh, In a way, it feels kind of like Twilight. The way it's shot in a way. It's obviously a lot more colourful, by far. Well, I mean, down to the fact that it's a mythical creature, a supernatural creature, taking someone out into the woods. <laughs> All of the weird deer imagery, too. Yeah. Like, what happened to this poor bloke is what should have happened to Bella Swan. But, like, I do think that that's... It's a very interesting thing when you look at the gender breakdown of people who die in this. It's the men put into position that women are usually put into in a Sasha film. Well, it's the position that Jennifer is put into at the beginning of the story. Yeah. I love the effects on the bodies here. That shit's incredibly well done. Much more graphic in the unrated cut as well. Yeah, I would expect so. They did a good job with some of the other effects too, like when Jennifer's mouth opens into the teeth. It's really disturbing. The black ooze that she vomits up and how it sort of prickles is really interesting. I don't know how to feel about Chip. He's mainly just boring. Yeah. I think that Chip is fantastic because, look, is there any greater, like, high school boyfriend, like, oh, yeah, right on the money, that's the guy. Yeah. He's got the haircut over the time as well. 
He's not interesting. He's dopey. He's a bit tone deaf in places, but at the end of the day, he's a perfectly sort of vanilla guy. He's not your forever hoe. No. He's the drummer. (laughs) Oh, go to hell. I I mean, John wasn't completely on his side when he talked about Phil Collins at the beginning. Well, yes, but as well, he's not that interesting a character. But again, the actor does a good job with the dialogue given. Yeah, Johnny Simmons, I probably wouldn't have been able to get through a scene saying the words front, but (laughs) I would probably turn to the director and say, don't know if I can. Like, I don't know if he's, like, supposed to be, like, kind of like a boring white bread dude, or if it's coming, like, 100% through the performance. I think he is. I th- I think I think it's Cody matching sort of the high school boyfriend thing and, and comparing that relationship to what has suddenly become a very dangerous and sexualized relationship with Jennifer yeah. as the best friend, which then ties into the makeout scene. Yeah. One of the lines that got to me is, it's not the kiss or anything like that, because that's pretty overt, but the line that got to me was, don't you want to play boyfriend-girlfriend again? Again, yes. The again part of that is attention-getting. That makes a lot of implications about their relationship. Yeah. Before we move on from the boyfriend entirely, I just want to, like, shout out Johnny Simmons. His best moment in the movie is the look on his face when he says, am I too big? It's like, no, honey, you're not. Mate. Mate. (laughs) That entire... When Needy starts having that kind of psychic thing, and she's, like, feeling the pain and everything. Yeah, it's just a bizarre scene. Well, again, it's it's a juxtaposition of these different ideas. There's the murder thing, there's the teenage uh, angst thing with the romance of the boyfriend. It's It's... It's intentionally drawing a parallel between the sex between Needy and her boyfriend, and it, it's drawing that as a sort of sexual parallel to what's going on with, with Jennifer. Mm. And let's get into that, because I do want to talk about that. I do want to talk about the relationship between Needy and Jennifer, because I think that... I don't want to be one of those guys who was, like, saying, oh, that you know, there needed to be more nudity, more hot and heavy or anything. They didn't. No. But they needed to address sort of the sexual undertones of that relationship more, I think. I think Cody mm. goes to it with the scene where they kiss. But I feel like they don't engage with the sexuality, the complicated and confused sexuality mm. of this whole dynamic with it as much as they should. Mm. Partly because I think it just because it was 2009. Yeah. Obviously, it'd be a lot more explicit now. Yeah, I think if this movie was made now, they would go into that a whole lot more. But as it stands, I feel like the only thing that Cody manages to get away with is that scene where, uh, you know, do you want to play boyfriend-girlfriend again? Yeah. Um, that's stuff that I find really interesting as part of, like, the commentary that Diablo Cody is sort of making about female friendships. And, like, she was talking in interviews about the whole reason for that kiss is to sort of, like, talk about the idea that, in her experience, she was saying, those friendships that she had as a teenage girl were as as intense and all-consuming as a relationship. It was like you'd be on the phone all all hours of the night, you'd want to spend all of your time together. Sleep in the same bed. Sleep in the same bed at sleepovers, and that as that gets older, the intensity of that changes and fades away into, you know, more traditional sort of friendships. But, like, the the sort of the intensity and the sort of that that Cody is seeing a sort of a sexual parallel to, to that it's tied up again 
in all of these things that the movie's got going on, but it's not being as clear about them as I want it to be. Well, honestly, I this is, and you, we don't get to say this much, I think this would work as a movie better if it was made now. Yeah. Just in general, you'd be able to, one, accomplish more, and two, it would be understood better now. Yeah, and I think this is a movie that was made before, yeah, definitely made before its time. Okay, who who do you get to play the two main characters? I think the Jennifer is obvious is Sydney Sweeney. Yeah. Mm. She's basically already playing Jennifer on Euphoria. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Who do you get as needy though? Cuz I wouldn't get any of the co-stars from Euphoria. Maybe like Caitlin Deva, Jenna Ortega. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah. Oh, Catherine Newton. Catherine Newton, she plays needy basically in Freaky. Yeah. Yeah. That works. You still get J.K. Simmons yeah. back, though. Yeah. I think it's also something that would work better as a six-episode thing. At least if you're wanting to keep all of those themes and ideas in it. Yeah. Yeah. I just think we like having more time to explore things, just generally. Yeah, because it's very clear that Diablo Cody has a lot of interesting things that she's trying to put into the movie, but is being marred by the fact that the movie has to end eventually. And she's not given enough time to expand on all of these things that she clearly wants to. Like, she tr- she wanted to make stories about these ideas, but she tried to put them all in the one movie instead of separating them out, as she probably should have. Yeah. And and to be, like, we've danced around it a bit. You guys have already mentioned that you're a little hot and cold on the dialogue. I, I think I actually quite like the dialogue. Yeah, I do too. Even if it sounds dopey and cheesy at times... That's the point. That's the point. That's teenage teenagers talking. Even if it's not literally how teenagers sound, it gets across the feeling of it. Because if you start writing literally how teenagers sound, then that'll become out of date pretty quickly. Yeah. I guess when I was talking about the dialogue, I do like how there's all of the specific verbiage that may in fact just be between Needy and Jennifer. It's like they're speaking in their own language. When they're conversing. And that's cool. I just, like... The script is dated because of, like, way too many ableist slurs. Hold on, like, Chris Pratt is there for some reason. He's just... <laughs> I had no idea, and he popped up. I was like, huh. For a moment, I was like, fuck, is that Chris Pratt? Shit, it is. Huh. Alright. You expect him to be in more of it, but he's not. And it's a we- it's. I'm just saying it's weird going back, is all. You expect different things because... You know, act this better now. It's just... It's like J.K. Simmons. Like, he wasn't as big a shot back then as he is now. I think Diablo Cody's dialogue is so interesting because of the way she turns a phrase. Because of... Because she takes the script in places you don't expect. That she unashamedly makes it things that women would say. Or that she would say as a woman. And I think that's so interesting that the script is so female-centric it talks about the patriarchy it talks about pms it talks about tampons it talks about all of these things that are very female presenting it talks about the patriarchy as an offhand joke like it's not really something that it's going into i i love the dialogue um when they're at the pool and needy just called jennifer insecure i love the um that's a joke how could i ever be insecure i was the snowflake queen yeah (laughs) Two years ago, when you were socially relevant. I'm still socially relevant. It's so bitter and biting and catty. It's it's so petty. Hasn't that 
taken on a different dynamic given it's spoken by Megan Fox. Mm. I do think that the, the script and the dialogue was sort of like one of the reasons that this movie... I feel like part of the pylon, or a lot of the pylon, was because of Diablo Cody. Yeah, yeah. Not fairly, either. Like, the, the knives were out for her. She sort of suffered from that thing that every famous woman does where they get very popular and then all of a sudden there's this, like, all right, let's not let's not think too highly of yourself, all right? We've got to pull you down now. It happens with everyone. It happened with, um, I mean, I suppose the most famous one in recent times would be Jennifer Lawrence. Mm-hmm. We just have, as a culture, a tendency to try to drag women down the more successful they get that we don't apply to females, to males, rather. And I think that the knives were really out for Diablo Cody. She was coming off of Juno and there was sort of a one of those tedious backlashes that always happens when something gets popular of like, oh, but really it's stupid, okay, and you're stupid for liking it. That that happened with Juno because of the the dialogue and the sort of the very baroque style that diablo cody writes in and like this movie came prepared the the critical reaction to it came prepared in a lot of ways i think that there were a lot of people that were ready to tear it down because it had diablo cody's name attached it's also a movie about teenage girls which let's be completely honest critics still have their struggles with that particularly the male critics Hmm. it goes that brie larson thing doesn't it that like that yeah that ridiculous thing that the internet tried to turn against her, like, like make it sound like she was saying that men shouldn't be able to review movies when what she was actually saying is the entirely reasonable thing of, you know, maybe people from the target audience have a better understanding of whether a movie is working or not than people who are not mm. from the target audience. Yeah. Maybe it would be good to have women reviewing movies made for women. And, you know, like, I suppose, you know, we're sitting here free white, straight, cisgender guys talking about Jennifer's body, so let's not pretend that... <laughs> yeah, like, we're not the key audience. Yeah, like, let's be perfectly honest about it. We are not going to have the most interesting take on Jennifer's body. I'm hoping that you're finding this conversation interesting and we're, mm. we're, we're trying to unpack it, but let's be honest here. The the people who uh, it's this movie is going to connect with the most and, and have the most interesting stuff to say about it are women. Like, we have very glaring gaps here. Yeah, I definitely suggest looking at videos from Film Fatales, Yara Zayed, and Brody Deschanel about Jennifer's body and its resurgence as a piece of feminist cult cinema. And I do think there's a place for male critics and you know, male podcasters like us to talk about this movie. I think that the, we come at it from a different perspective. I think that's a valuable perspective to in- to include, and there's some interesting stuff to talk about there, but, like, it shouldn't be the dominant perspective. No, of course. No, God, no. Because this movie wasn't made for us. It was made for people like Diablo Cody. It's like if you if every Shakespeare movie was reviewed by teenagers who whose only experience with Shakespeare was, like, being forced to read plays in high school. They're not going to approach that with the way that is going to tell you how valuable that movie really is or not. No. Yeah, exactly. And that's the thing about, you know, cultural investigation, I guess you could say, or reviewing pieces of media and stuff. Never let one person's view of a piece of work, a piece of fiction, a piece of art, a documentary, a piece of music or a book or a piece of theatre, be the be-all and end-all of your exploration into that piece of work. Watch, listen to, read be a part of that art itself, 
and look at other people's interpretations of that work. I can't tell you how much joy I've gotten from watching video essays that have shown me new ways of looking at stuff like The Shining or even Jennifer's Body. A lot of those women who I've mentioned who spoke about this movie have very interesting takes on it and definitely looked up their opinions and about not only this, but about other media as well. Well, and here's something that I've come to realize. Not all art is made for everybody. No. Sometimes it's niche. But the the least you can do is respect it. And, like, I like the movie. I'll, I like it fine. It's just not going to speak to me the same way as another movie will. And I do think it's interesting that the the film almost seems des- seemed destined from the get-go to be a cult film. It's a movie that was made 10 years before it should have been made. Exactly. Well, I think we are reaching the end of our conversation here. Uh, There is nothing in the IMDb Parents Guide this week that shouldn't be there. So why don't we instead go around and say who our MVP is for this movie, what our favourite scene or sequence is, and of course, who we would recast with this podcast patron saint, character actor John Lithgow. Knock, knock, who's there? (laughs) Me! Like the one possibility. I will start us off and I will say that my MVP here... Look, I'm, I'm, I'm going to say it. I'm really close to giving it to the actress playing the mother in, in, in that mm, funeral mm. scene. But uh, I do have to be reasonable here and give it to someone who's in more than a minute and a half of the movie. And I will give it to Amanda Seyfried. I think she mm. is doing everything that is being asked of her brilliantly. Uh, she is handling all of the different tones and the different themes brilliantly. And I've just realised from the more stuff I see her doing, I mean, obviously, Mamma Mia, that was really the first time I've seen her in in anything, but I've just seen her in more things recently and more, you know, stuff. And she is just always good. She's always a very, very strong actress. So, yeah, I'm going to give it to her. I think she's brilliant in this. In terms of my favourite scene or sequence, I mean, I've already basically said it. It's the funeral scene that was cut from the theatrical cut for some reason. (laughs) I think it is the best scene in the movie. It is the best written. It is the most heartfelt. It's funny. It's sad. It's brilliantly performed by Gabrielle Rose. She is extraordinary. And it it ties together the themes of it so well in a way that I, I just find it so bewildering that this was cut from the film proper. And I've, I've got to suspect, I, I can't believe that Karen Kusama and Diablo Cody cut that willingly. I've got to believe that yeah. that was a studio note because mm. otherwise it just makes no sense to me. And like you said, John, how many options do we really have for John Lithgow? I mean, there is one. I, he might as well already be here already playing the J.K. Simmons character of the teacher with the hook for a hand. He would f- slot in spectacularly well in that role. He would be absolutely brilliant in it. The line readings wouldn't even have to change a syllable. Yeah, and, you know, uh, there's really no other role for him. Like, even if I didn't think he was a fantastic fit for this role, what else am I going to put him in? Like, one of the low-shoulder guys? No, like... There's no other spot for him. I would have to say my MVP is Diablo Cody. The movie came out before its time, to be completely honest. If it came out today, it would obviously need changes to the script, the new cast, and maybe a new director. I don't know what the director is doing currently. Um, she does TV. She's she's actually a producer and a director of that Showtime series Yellow Jackets. Ah, uh, yeah. Oh. Which feels very much in keeping with the uh, 
Jennifer's body. She, I will say, it's unfortunate that this movie performed the way it did for her because it did hamper her career for quite a while. It didn't help that her only movie before that was Eon Flux. Oh, God. But coming off of that and this, uh, she doesn't get to direct another movie again for six years. And when she does, it's a movie that has a really great reputation for as being a really cool psychological thriller, The Invitation, which came out in um, 2015. But it was it was a very small movie, an, an independent film that was released in so few theatres, its worldwide gross was under $400,000. But it's got a very good reputation. And since then, she's done... Um, a lot of TV. She's directed episodes of uh, The Man in the High Castle, Billions, Halt and Catch Fire, The Outsider. She directed that Nicole Kidman undercover cop movie Destroyer in 2018. Oh, yeah. But then she's uh, been on the Yellow Jackets train for a while now, and she is attached to direct episodes of TV shows based on Dead Ringers, the, you know, identical twin psychopath. Mm. And also episodes of uh, the Sexy Beast TV prequel. Huh. Oh, well. Like, yeah, they get, get her back as director if it was made today. But the script is really biting, it's witty and funny. Not too hot in the slurs, but it was the time after all. It was the style at the time. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus, Lawson. <laughs> I want onion on me, well. Yeah, I just think, like, Diablo Cody has such an interesting voice as a writer, and honestly, I'd like to see more from her. My favourite scene or sequence is one that's not in the version of the movie I watched. Yes, and that you watched over a Zoom call on my phone, <laughs> played through a Zoom call just now while we were recording this podcast. You got to see my reaction live when I was watching my favourite scene from the movie. How the fuck do you remove that? It had to be studio. It it just had to be. Like, it's funny with the goth kids. It's heartbreaking with the mother. And that not only meshes the messages of the movie together, but also the tone. It's meant to be able to swing from funny to tragic. Yeah, that's my favorite scene or sequence from the movie, and I didn't even watch it properly. Hmm, how about that? And John Lithgow is the teacher with the hook hand. How 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 could it not be? I mean, he's got all of his limbs intact, and he's got the energy of a man with a hook for a hand. I just think that he'd bring such an energy to it. Might be slightly different to what J.K. Simmons is doing, and it would suck to lose J.K. Simmons, but I think of it more as gaining John Lithgow. But yeah, John? Yeah, for me, it's Diablo Cody. Her dialogue is so intricate and fascinating. No one else writes dialogue like her. It's... So fascinating, in fact, I'm willing to go back and watch Juno just to see the sort of growth of her as a screenwriter. My favorite scene or sequence is definitely that scene that you showed us, just because of how witty the script was, how it just absolutely skewers that idea of he's off fornicating with the demon women. And it's like, no, he's in a box being lowered into the ground. He's dead. Don't act you've, like you've got grief that is in any way com comparable to mine. I've got the monopoly on grief. That sequence, the way that, that that actress plays that is stellar, and it boggles the mind as to why that wasn't in the theatrical, because it could have been. I see, I can't understand why it's not. You know, like, with some deleted scenes and 
things that you find in director's cuts and uncut versions, you can kind of understand why, for a theatrical audience, they were removed. This doesn't make any sense. Because, yeah, it just doesn't make any sense. I can't even fathom why it was removed. Uh, And for John Lithgow, it's the teacher, I guess? Like, he's literally the only choice he can have. He would play the character exactly like J.K. Simmons is playing it. And, yeah, as you said, Lawson, it's really difficult to try and imagine grabbing young John Lithgow by the scruff of his shirt, dragging him to 2009 and being like, play this character, like, as if he's one of the people from the band or anything. Uh, so that is that. Now we'll take a vote as to whether we are or are not a pro-Jennifer's Body podcast. Lawson, you start us off. I can't quite go there. I think that this is a movie with a lot of really interesting ideas. I love the themes it's playing with. I love the intelligence and the the heart with which it's playing with them. But it is too unfocused for me to really sign off on it That to that degree. Uh, I enjoy it, but it's just too scattershot for me to get there. Holly? I would have to completely agree with Lawson here. To be fair, it's not made for me, and I appreciate it a lot, I really do, but I do prickle at some of the execution. I think if made today, Diablo Cody would be able to go as far as she clearly would have wanted to. She was really hamstrung by the time she wrote it. Also, she'd be able to get a better actor than Megan Fox in the role as Jennifer, and I do think the role of Jennifer requires an actor who can do a lot, and we don't get that here. Uh, So I'm not negative on the movie in any sense, I just don't... Don't cross that line into pro. Yeah, me neither. And it's not the movie. It's me. <laughs> it's it's not made for people like us. But even though that's the case, there are a few things that I think can be excised, some things that could be expanded to make this a better piece. I think it would have been better to not have that stuff in the asylum at the beginning and at the ending. I think the ending could have been a lot nastier to really get those themes across to the audience. And as Holly and Lawson have said, even though I liked Megan Fox's performance in this movie, I can see where a little bit more time and an actor with a little bit more talent in the craft could have really made that character sing. Uh, So I'm ambivalent towards this movie, but high-end ambivalent. So there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. We are not a pro- Jennifer's Body Podcast. If you would like to reach us, you can find us at each of our blogs. You can find Lawson at Exit Through the Candy Counter for joining myself on the press side. You can also reach us, for now, at our Twitter, which is the best place to give us episode-specific feedback and movie recommendations. What do you think about Jennifer's Body? Do you think it would be better if it was made today? What were your impressions of it when it came out? And who do you cast in the roles if it were made today? Uh, tell us all that on the Twitter. You can also like, rate, comment, and subscribe on your podcast app of choice. Just keep in mind that when you're commenting on certain podcast apps, it's for individual episodes. On others, it's for the show on the whole. Uh, just depending on what service you use, just cater for that. If you if you need to talk about specific episodes, it's always good to just specifically cite them in the comment. Hmm. What movie do you want Holly and Jean to watch? Let's yes, bring that back. please give us recommendations. I miss that. Even though Camelot bothered me a lot, it was still good to watch it. Like, comment, rate, and subscribe. The algorithm requires it. You would expect a machine to have full control over its body, to be, like, more physically capable than the average human being. 
uh, having none of the faults playing within the human fleshy form. In the movies, you see the androids as incredibly competent, either as soldiers or in certain things in, like, Westworld as sports people, like playing golf. Toby fucking sucks at physical activity. And it's not because of his machine body. I just don't think he has the has that in him as a being to do sports. Have you gotten better? I've gotten much better at golf, thank you very much. Uh, Toby struggles with the drives, but his short game is really strong. Uh, so, Lawson, what do we have next week? Well, next week we will be going in a different direction. Uh, we will be doing a smaller movie again. I said before recently that I would like to do smaller movies a, a little more often, and, and this is one that has mostly flown under the radar. It is the science fiction horror film Pandorum. Uh, that's P-A-N-D-O-R-U-M, Pandorum. And if you would like to follow along at home, you can find it available for rental or purchase on the YouTube, Fetch, and Apple stores. So, join us next week when we talk about Pandorum. Until then, I have been Holly Lewis. I've been Lawson Keeney. And I have been, and will continue to be Sean Lewis. Cause I'm still here breathing now.